This is Families Under Pressure, a podcast series from the Life Course Centre. Over this series, we examine the pressures facing families today and the practical steps that can be taken to better support our children and families over their life course journey. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Families Under Pressure. I'm Professor Matt Sanders from the University of Queensland and a Chief Investigator in the Life Course Centre. This has been a really great series so far. In each episode, we get to talk to key research leaders across the Life Course Centre about their specific research focus and how their areas of research feed into the Life Course perspective to tackle social disadvantage. What I've really liked about it so far is how we've showcased the true multidisciplinary nature of the centre and the collaboration that brings people together across these different disciplines into a shared focus on assisting families who need extra help. In this episode, our guest is Professor Guillaume Kalb, a Life Course Centre Chief Investigator from the Melbourne Institute of Applied Economic and Social Research at the University of Melbourne. Guillaume's research is really interesting and the main field is applied microeconomics and includes labour supply issues, in particular female labour supply and also the impact of factors such as childcare and parental activities on child development and health. Guillaume leads the Life Course Centre's Melbourne Node And she's been involved in several major research projects providing evidence for policymakers, including a number of evaluation studies, such as the evaluation of Australia's paid parental leave scheme. It's great to have you with us today, Guillaume. Thanks so much for inviting me, Matt. Uh, It's really nice to be here today. I'm looking forward to our chat. Terrific. Well, let's start off by introducing how your research and the work of the Melbourne Institute of Applied Economic and Social Research fits in with the Life Course Centre. So the Melbourne Institute is at the forefront of longitudinal survey data in Australia. And in that sense, studies across the Life Course are really close to its research agenda. So a major data set that perhaps a lot of people might have heard about is the Household Income and Labour Dynamics in Australia, or the HILDA survey. It's a survey that's been uh, designed and managed by staff at the uh, Melbourne Institute. So Professor Mark Wooden is the director of this survey. And there's a whole team of people that are located in the Melbourne Institute at the University of Melbourne that are working on this uh, survey, that are designing the questionnaire that are dealing with the data when it comes in, cleaning it up, making it ready for the many researchers in Australia to work with it, including many people at the Melbourne Institute. So it's one of those data sets that um, I think nearly every person that works at the Melbourne Institute has done some research with. And it's a, it's a really great resource. And I think the Life Course Centre benefits a lot from this, this survey because it really looks at the whole household So this includes the uh, adults in the household, but also the children from when they are aged uh, 15. And so it's a really rich resource to see what's happening to people as they move through their lives. I understand the uh, Institute is also involved in the Taking the Pulse of the Nations survey. Tell us a little bit about that. 
Yeah, so that's quite a different uh, type of service. So that's something that was developed at the start of the uh, COVID pandemic in March last year. So we already had a survey which was really meant to look at consumer confidence, which was held once a month and was a collaboration with Westpac Australia and basically looked at how people viewed the economic circumstances for them. What they've done is use this survey to, as a basis to add on questions that related directly to the COVID situation in Australia. So we asked people about how COVID has affected, for example, their employment outcomes, or how COVID has affected their financial outcomes and circumstances. And so this survey first was done weekly and then moved to a two-weekly pattern, which meant that we really were following closely how people reacted and were affected by the COVID pandemic here in Australia. And it has been a wonderful resource. It's just a snapshot of a person. So it doesn't have the richness of the HILDA data, which follows people over time, but it gives you many snapshots at different points in time, which allow you to assess how people are going and how people are feeling about the current situation. Yeah, and and tell us a little bit more about the sampling and where these families are coming from, or where these participants are coming from. So these participants are basically from across Australia. So we have 1,200 participants in every survey, and they are phoned by a market research organization. They ask them sort of a set of questions if they are in the right age group, so they need to be aged 18 or over. And they construct weights so that the survey is representative of the Australian population. I guess um, you're our first guest on this uh, podcast series from the Melbourne node of the Life Course Centre. And obviously, uh, Victoria has had a somewhat different experience of the COVID journey from the rest of Australia. In terms of the, the key learnings that have come from both your so- survey work and the kind of the lived experience of going through COVID in, in Melbourne, any reflections or observations about it? Yeah, I I think we we definitely have had a very different run from the other uh, Australians. So I think the second lockdown was was a very long period of time where we weren't able to uh, basically move outside of our own suburb. So I think it was probably even more strict than the first lockdown. And I think a lot of people felt quite isolated as a result. So you may have heard about people who were living alone and weren't allowed to sort of have other people at home. So they had a particularly isolating experience, which they tried to relieve by allowing people living alone to have at least one person visiting. So I think the uh, government was aware of the impact it was having on, on the population. And it was really a balance between, I guess, the mental health and well-being of people versus the when the, the virus running out of control. Just going back to the um, taking the pulse survey of the nation, are there any particular learnings or findings from that work that you'd like to draw to our attention? Yes, so we, uh, one of the things we did fairly late last year was to actually look 
at the experiences from people in Melbourne, Victoria versus the other states and looking at the, first of all, uh, experiences of unemployment or underemployment. So a lot of people might not have lost a job, but they had reduced hours compared to what they had before COVID. And we asked about that particularly. So we asked them whether they had experienced reduced hours as a result of COVID. So one of the things that we found was women were affected by COVID in terms of higher unemployment to a larger extent than men. And this was true for the whole of Australia at the start of the pandemic, where everyone was in Australia was sort of affected in a similar way. What we found was that at the end of last year, in the other states, a lot of people had recovered employment and the situation was much less dire than at the start. But in Melbourne, Victoria, they were still at a very low employment level compared to the other states. And what was very striking in that was that women, again, were the ones that were suffering the most. So it seemed like whenever the pandemic had an employment effect, the women were affected more than men. And when the recovery sets in, women recovered to a large extent than men, but they were still worse off than men. And this was particularly true for people outside of the main cities. And so that's one of the outcomes that we've not heard about very much in the media, but which I think is really important to try and understand a little bit more why this is the case and whether there should be perhaps policies that try to help women in rural areas to regain employment. For us to be able to sort of recommend approaches that can achieve this, we need to understand better what it is exactly that makes them more likely to uh, experience unemployment. When you think about the disproportionate impacts of this on women's participation in the the labour market and you think about the knock-on effects that that might have at a family level. Um, I mean, how do you think it is affecting the family lives of women who are in an employment situation that I guess prefer not to be in? I think it's it's a really complicated uh, question. So you you sort of have the demand side of the economy where people might lose their job or they may have reduced hours. But at the same time, you have the homeschooling, which was going on for a lot of people in Australia and for people in Victoria for a much longer period of time. So that meant that if you were a parent with children that uh, go to school, you might well need to help your children to participate in this homeschooling. And so you cannot just sort of give them a laptop and leave them to their own devices. They may need support and help to be able to participate in what's offered by the school. And so you sort of have the sort of double impact of potentially losing your job, but at the same time having difficulties actually doing your job from home because you have this yeah, sort of uh, dual responsibility. And of course, you may have a partner who's still working, but working from home. And, you know, that whole issue of how how they were dividing up or dealing with the whole homeschooling problem, it becomes a kind of a quite a complex uh, family dynamic, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and so I think maybe one, one, one uh, sort of research result, which is interesting, which is not for Australia, but for the Netherlands. But what we found there seems to show a similar pattern to what we saw from 
our uh, taking the pulse data that we that we analyzed. This is that single parents were suffering to a larger extent, it seemed. And I think the dual role that parents have may be sort of more difficult to navigate when you're by yourself and don't have the other parent to share the burden of homeschooling and the burden of the responsibility yeah. of entertaining children at home. And so what we found in the Netherlands was that it didn't really make much difference for employment outcomes whether you had children or not. But what did make a difference was when you were a single parent. So if you were a single parent, you were more affected by non-employment and reduced hours. And we cannot identify whether this is because you lost your job or whether you just couldn't combine your job with this home responsibility. It seems to indicate that it might be more of a like a home caring responsibility is that people who had essential jobs were no more or less likely to be affected. And I wonder, of course, that the single parents that we're talking about may be already disadvantaged prior to COVID in a number of different ways. And it, it's a sort of like exacerbation of stress buildup with this on top of the issues that they're having to sometimes deal with by having a lower income and perhaps having to do the, the, the parenting journey solo. Yeah, I think that that's, that's definitely true. So we did try to sort of uh, control for a lot of that, but it's definitely true that there is sort of, it, it's not just the COVID that arrives that's making it difficult, it's the fact that they may be on lower incomes, which means that it's more difficult to get additional support. So if you have high income, you can probably buy sort of uh, some services that may make your life a little bit easier, but when you're on a lower income, you don't really have that relief for your caring roles to sort of make life more doable for for you. So I think that's definitely an issue. And I think that's something that we see with childcare, for example, as well, where it's the single parents who may struggle the most to actually afford formal childcare due to the cost and sort of the sometimes the lack of flexibility in hours that they can gain. Single parents don't have that support at home to provide backup for them that couple parents do have, which I think is, is, is really important. We've been talking quite a lot about single parents and women being significantly disadvantaged to a greater degree by loss of employment and being uh, slower to, in a recovery period, to regain employment. And I'm thinking that, you know, there's a whole variety of responses that the government and the communities have been looking to do to turn the situation around so that people are not being really adversely affected permanently in, in, a, in terms of their well-being and mental health and that kind of thing. But I was just wondering, as an economist, when you're sort of reflecting on this whole situation uh, and you start thinking about, well, what, what would make the greatest difference? What, what things, from your perspective, do you think should be done? that perhaps the things that are good that are being done and the things that if you were able to uh, advise government on what could be done differently, you would want to emphasise? Yes, I think one of the things that's that's probably really important is to ensure that the childcare is, is uh, affordable and that workplaces react relatively flexibly to parents at this point in time because one of the things that you hear about a lot is that 
the child carers are obviously very cautious and rightfully so, so that if your child has a sniffle, they would be much more likely to have to stay at home than they may have been in the past. And so that means that uh, it can be very challenging for parents to continue working. And so childcare is one component that's really important, I think, to keep parents connected to the labour market. The other part, I think, is, is really the type of employment that particularly women may be in. So I think the impact that we see, for example, in the more rural areas for women, they are likely to be connected to particular industries. I haven't been able to look into this into detail, but I think this is one area that we should look into more deeply and try to determine, is it just tourism? Is it just services? What, what types of jobs have been lost in rural areas? And is there anything we can do to make that come back? Because we would have expected this to, to improve in line with perhaps the improvements we've seen in the metropolitan areas and the improvements we've seen for men. So there is a particular reason that women haven't recovered to the same extent and trying to understand that and then see whether there's a particular targeted policy that could do something about that, especially after March this year when JobKeeper will be finished. And I think people are looking at that date with trepidation because there is a large part of the economy that's not ready to return independently of the government support understanding which industries are most affected, whether there is something we can do to either generate a different type of jobs or to support them so that, it, that they remain viable for the period of time that it takes to actually return to a more normal situation. Because I think a lot of people feel don't feel confident to travel, for example, when you know that the border can be locked basically within a day. And so I think there's still a lot of issues that need to be worked through and that we need to design policies around so that the economy can start to recover, I guess, more generally. With respect to employment in regional areas, my understanding was that there's uh, a lot more domestic tourism taking place within Australia and particularly within states. And how has that not led to either a maintenance or an increase in uh, employment for workers in those industries if there's not been a huge drop-off? Yeah, no, that's my understanding as well. And it definitely wasn't easy to book anything over the holidays uh, this year yeah. in, uh, in Victoria. And I'm sure in the other states it, it was the same. And so that's one of the parts that surprises me. So that so in Victoria, we were still in lockdown when I sort of did this analysis but the other states had started to recover and I know that a lot of people were travelling because they had been locked up and they were keen to go out of their usual environment to, to, to see the state that they lived in. And so the fact that women in rural areas remained at such higher employment compared to where they were before is a little bit puzzling to me and that's why I think we, we do need to look into that more deeply. So it's uh, I had expected that to recover, perhaps to a similar extent as the men in the rural areas and the men and women in metropolitan areas. And 
the data tells us it hasn't. I don't fully understand why, and so I think that's that's one part where where we really need to know more about the types of jobs that haven't bounced back, like most of the jobs seem to have. And the government is clearly saying that things are getting better, and, and it's true, I mean, things are getting better, but there are these pockets where um, the improvement hasn't been to the same level, and I think that's where we really need, like, if we, if we want to provide support, I think that's where we need to provide support. And, and so that what, whatever pre-existing disadvantage is not magnified further. Look, I wonder if I could just sort of change the topic slightly for a moment and just reflect upon the way in which uh, families uh, are being affected in terms of their kind of everyday living. When the community's been through such a kind of stressful time as COVID and it's impacted not only on employment but people's mental health and well-being and a lot of people have felt their relationships have been certainly influenced or impacted in some one way or another. I'm just wondering from your perspective, I mean, how important do you think it is in terms of uh, influencing the life course outcomes of children that families still continue to function well. When parents are not coping and they're becoming uh, miserable and depressed and overwhelmed, it can impact their th- things like uh, just how consistent they are, how available they are emotionally to their children. And I'm just wondering from, from your thinking about the impact of COVID, how important do you think these sort of family relationships are to how we get through this? I think, I think they are really crucial. And I think one of the things that the Taking the Pulse of the Nation survey has found, and this is not research I've done myself with colleagues of myself at the Melbourne Institute, they found that parents suffered the most mental stress uh, from all groups. And so they seem to have been affected mentally to a really large extent by the COVID crisis. Both mothers and fathers, or was it mainly with mothers? that this No, so the, the interesting thing was it was actually more fathers, it seemed. It didn't really matter whether they had lost employment or not. So even fathers who remained employed, they were much more stressed in the period when COVID was striking compared to similar families uh, using some of the HILDA data that we have. So we could actually look at comparable Uh, families Mm -hmm. and look at the situation last year and then compare that to two years ago. And so what we find there is that mothers are usually more stressed than fathers, but the COVID pandemic seemed to have affected fathers in particular. I wonder whether that's partly because fathers have been finding themselves, if they're having to work from home, in a very different situation of, of, of trying to work, but also realising if homeschooling was going on, they were kind of uh, expected to do some heavy lifting as well and not uh, just solely have it reliant on uh, on someone else. Um, I mean, obviously, there are, there are many dads who are very actively involved in raising their children, but still there's a, a much higher a burden of responsibility in most families for, for women in the, the parenting role. When it comes down to thinking about the, the family relationships and you know, when people don't get a break from each other, they're, they're living in uh, close quarters for a considerable period of time. This can clearly have an impact. Yeah, that's, that's an area I must admit I don't really know much about. So I've done a little bit of research on social support, but not so much on the conflict side of things. 
the, the environment of children is clearly important and I think parents are sort of the earliest environment so if that's not a pleasant environment then see I just wonder when when we when we start to think more broadly about uh, families living in poverty or relative poverty and the long-term impacts on children's uh, life course and, and their development. There are still many, many children who are living in socially disadvantaged circumstances who have very capable parents and that those kids don't all end up having you know, major life course problems by any means. And I'm just wondering, when you think about the impact of uh, uh, poverty and disadvantage, its impact that has uh, been exacerbated by COVID, do you have any thoughts on the factors that might moderate the impact on poverty on life course outcomes? Other things that, you know, because the great great temptation is to assume that if people are living in uh, significant financial disadvantage their kids are almost certainly going to be adversely affected, but that's not necessarily the case, is it? No, it's just one aspect. It's just that it comes together with other disadvantages uh, in, 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 in many cases. So I think a lot of the sort of recent research is really looking at sort of the multiple disadvantages. So having low income per se is not necessarily detrimental to children's outcomes. If you have supportive parents who take care of you, who do things with you, who talk to you and are really an important part of your life and are really keen for you to do well, who sort of push you to some extent. There's no reason that those children are not going to do well with the right support. So I think if the government puts in place schooling that's affordable, childcare that's affordable, and sort of make sure there's a good environment for them, those children will do fine. But it's when the multiple, multi, yeah, when there's sort of lots, lots of different factors that come together. It's interesting that, isn't it, that if you think about growing up in a healthy, loving home with parents who've got the kind of capabilities that they need to, to promote children's development, you can be relatively poor and multiply disadvantaged and those relationships become protective factors to um, mitigate the adverse effects of other forms of adversity, even when they're combined. And I, I, what, I, what I really wonder is that when you think about the the relative emphasis that's provided in helping the community kind of overcome uh, the adverse effects of COVID, it's almost as though we really have to take not just sort of economic policies and the way in which we support families into account, but also thinking about it from a capability development perspective that children and, and, and their families are going through this unique and challenging set of experiences right now and that there's a silver lining to some of this and that, you know, if you think about our, our history of having gone through wars and, you know, world wars and natural disasters and depressions and so on, not everyone is adversely affected by it and there are some who actually derive positive benefit. I'm just wondering whether, whether you feel that... In order to resolve this, we truly need a kind of uh, balanced policy framework across these multiple domains of, of things that uh, influence people's functioning and not just be too narrow in our focus. It's not just money. It's also other support that's important. Policies that can help families, for example, to combine work and family 
can be really important. And so I think one of the things that has come out perhaps of the COVID pandemic is the ability of workers to work from home. So I think what it has shown is that for a lot of occupations, people are close to equally productive at home as they would be in the office. And I think that's been something that perhaps a lot of employers hadn't expected. So I think it's probably true to say that a lot of employers weren't too keen on people working from home on a regular basis. But if there's one thing that this pandemic has shown is that a lot of work continued to go on while being done from home. And so one thing that I'm really curious to see is whether the opportunities for people to work from home, at least on a part-time basis, will, will, will improve and whether that might sort of be one way where parents, uh, but also other carers, may be better able to combine sort of their working life with the other things that they need to do in their lives. And so that can be caring for children, but could also be caring for older parents or for, for other family that may need some attention. And where it can be easier to do this when you don't have to always be in the office for your work, but where you can sort of say, okay, I work from uh, eight to five, but I sort of take this hour in between to do this thing with my child or to sort of go to my parents and do some shopping for them or something along those lines. And I think that could improve the quality of life for a lot of people. Uh, I think we have to also recognise that there is a lot of people out there working from home who have Zoom fatigue and, and are really desperate for in-person contact, at least more frequent than it is in the moment. But I agree, I think going into the, into the future, we're going to have many more people having these blended ways of working and it's going to potentially have a really uh, valuable impact on family life. I wonder, just thinking about key takeaway messages... If you were advising government and you were saying, look, these are the really big ticket items that could make a big difference, what would you recommend? So one of the things that I think could be improved in Australia particularly is the support that's available to young families. So one of the things that I feel is perhaps lacking here is the level of support when people starting a family. So I think one really great step forward has been the paid parental leave scheme that's been available for all families, which has really opened up, I think, the opportunity for a lot of families to take more leave around the time of their children's birth. And I think that's been really important to keep uh, particularly women connected to the labour market, which I think is important when you're thinking of the life course. So I think that what happens often is that having children may have these really long-term impacts, particularly for women. If you can give people support around the time that they have children and that they are perhaps not as financially affluent and, and, and basically need a lot of time at home with their family, if at that time point in time you could provide more support so that they can afford to use childcare, to keep connected to the labour force, to make sure that they can keep the type of job that they had before, that they don't feel they need to move to a job perhaps with fewer responsibilities because the combination of work and family is just too hard otherwise. I think if we can sort of provide that support at that point in time, 
where life can be sometimes really difficult for people. We might reap sort of long-term benefits in terms of uh, more women keeping connected to the labor force and less, being less likely to become dependent on income support if, for example, divorce or widowhood sort of occurs later in their lives. At the same time, providing this support will also help children. So I think when parents are supported, as you were sort of saying earlier, if parents are supported, they will feel better uh, capable of looking after children. They will be mentally stronger. And I think that will benefit the children's development, as well as having good childcare uh, available for all children can also provide a more equal starting point for children in their lives so that they don't start at a disadvantage when they, for example, go to school. Well, thanks for your time, Guillaume. It's been terrific to have you today and for you to share your insights. So that's it for our latest episode of the Life Course Centre's Families Under Pressure podcast. I'm Professor Matt Sanders. Look out for more episodes coming soon. I hope you can tune in then.